have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. It's amazing how far water will travel once it enters someplace on the roof. It, it, it's always surprised me. It's rare that you find a leak exactly where a hole may be or where there's a bad shingle, for example. So my, my guess is if you continue to fight this and you know your basement is dry, uh, that you've got a, a, a problem elsewhere. It's either from a plumbing line or it's coming from that roof. And since you know you have some roof problems, I'd venture to say when you re-roof that house, you're going to find the source and you're going to eliminate this. Do you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's here to help you deal with the issues that are important to today's homeowner. He's a Class A licensed contractor who's designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects, as well as single-family homes up and down the East Coast. Ken is here this weekend ready to take your calls at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And you can email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. We're going to start out by asking you a few questions. I want you to be challenged a little bit here, so pay attention. First, do you have mineral deposits that build up around the faucets on your kitchen sink or your lavatory? Do you have rust stains that are visible on the outside walls of your irrigating yard or landscape material? How about a high chlorine taste or odor? If you come out of the shower feeling like somebody just poured a bottle of Clorox over you? Well, I know I have from time to time. And there's some of you out there dealing with well water that may have sulfur water and odors and smells that's very difficult for you to cope with. And others on well water, they're dealing with sediment and various deposits that you find in those little strainers in your kitchen faucets. And you also see them sometimes in bottoms of water if you don't have those strainers in place in your glasses. Well, that little quiz was to challenge you a little bit and think about your drinking water in your home and in your office environment. Now, folks, I have to tell you before we go much further with this that we have some of the safest drinking water anywhere in the world here in the United States. Our municipalities do a wonderful job of getting rid of bacteria and filtering what they are supposed to legally out of it. Many of you on well water certainly have those wells tested for bacteria at the time they're put in. But once we have water service to our home, whether it's well or domestic water, we rarely think about it beyond that. And the things I've just described to you, rust stains on the outside if you're irrigating a yard and that water ends up on your house, if you've got mineral deposits on the inside, this is a sign of a water condition that municipalities do not treat, they're not required to treat, and that many of you don't deal with when it comes to your own domestic well. We're going to talk a little bit about today about water softeners. Now, water softeners do far more than what we typically think of when we refer to just a water softener. And they do, not only can they create, they get rid of some of the minerals that you're seeing with these deposits that build up in and around your faucets, but beyond that, they can preserve things you don't see. You have some very small lines that go to ice makers. They may only be a quarter of an inch, for example, in diameter. You have small lines that go into the dishwasher that feed water within that, and you have very small openings in the spray heads on your dishwasher. These mineral deposits over time clog up those openings. They clog up those lines. They don't work well, and in some cases, they don't work at all. But you can deal with that. The chlorine, the rust stains may not be an issue to many of you like the mineral deposits are. So let's talk a little bit about types of water softeners. You send me emails, you call me from time to time, and you say, what do I do? What do I need? 
And the intent today is simply one to cause you to think about your drinking water, the safety of your drinking water, and to think about some of the issues that it may be causing for you within your home or the pipes or the appliances within the home, but also to give you some very basics so you can ask the right questions of your dealer or the people you're working with if you're in the market for a water softener. As I said, if you have any of the items that I've described above, you want to pay close attention to this. There are four basic types of water softening or water softening methods, and they're used for different purposes, and they're common. Some are more common in different regions of the country. So those of you listening to us in the Midwest may find that one is better suited for your type of water and the hardness of water than those of you listening to us in Alabama, for example. But first, we're going to talk about a salt-free water softener, which uses a catalytic media. Now, the system requires no monthly maintenance. It doesn't require any additional monthly cost. You're not buying chemicals for it. It softens the water without the use of salt or potassium. And the salt-free softener leaves, of course, all the essential minerals in the drinking water, which really is good for us. Now, these can be effective, but you need to do your own investigating work based on your living area. Again, I'm going to say this two or three times because not every softener works in every area with all types of water properly. There's also a salt base, which is probably the most common around this country, a salt-based water softener, and that's an ion exchange. Now, the some of the advantages of using that, of course, is it has a longer life for appliances, including things I just talked about, your washing machines, your dishwashers, your water heaters. It uses allows you to use less cleaning de- uh, detergents and soap and so forth than just leaving the hard water. So I'm just giving you a quick rundown. All of this information will be available, by the way, at our website, kenthecontractor.com. And then many of you, especially if you live in coastal areas where you may have saltwater intrusion, are very familiar with what's called a reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis is an ultrafine filtration system that's under pressure, and it will remove salt from water. It's a very expensive system. But, again, I know we have some listening to us in those areas. And then there is what some of you have called me about and asked me questions on called a magnetic water softener, which uses magnets. I'll tell you, many of these I have never used. I'm telling you that industry-wide, these are the types that are available around the country, and I want you to be knowledgeable of them, and I want you to be able to ask your dealers questions about the different types and what is right for you. Now, again, I said some of these are restricted by the hardness of your water. If the water is too hard, some will not work and others will be too costly for those of you that have just a minimal hardness of water. But I want to talk specifically about the salt-based units because those are the most common. Sodium chloride is a naturally occurring mineral that's found in the earth. It comes from underground. It's mined in salt mines, and it's most commonly used in water softeners. Now, the sodium chloride is typically used also because it's a lower price. But there's another type that's available. This is what I happen to use personally, is a potassium chloride. It's also naturally occurring, and it works in softeners the same way sodium chloride does, but it replaces the hard water minerals with potassium instead of sodium. Now, potassium chloride, I think most of us know, is an essential nutrient for human health. So it's certainly not going to be harmful to you. And it's exchanging, as I said, if you, it's extracting the potassium chloride the potassium is going to be more costly because it costs more money to get out of the ground. Now, that turns a lot of people off. In some cases, I've paid almost double for potassium what I have paid for sodium chloride, but I think it's a healthier product for me, for my family to be using. So, When you're looking at water softeners, 
since the majority of these are salt-based. Ask your dealer about this. Also, you want to talk to them about the level of maintenance. Do you have the infrastructure? You're going to have to add piping to get to it. Is this going to sit in a garage? Do you need to have an enclosed area for temperature control? Are you going to have to add heat? There's so many things that come into play when you're adding a water softener to a system. There are no questions that should be left off the table. If it's in your mind, you need to be asking about it before you purchase a water softener. The other thing you need to think about is how much maintenance are you willing to put into it. I personally use a Kinetico water softener because I'm a pretty lazy fellow when it comes to maintenance, and I want to put something in and have it work over and over again. I use a water softener that has no electricity. It has no batteries, nothing to wind up, no springs in it. I simply put... The potassium in it about twice a year, it does everything through normal water flow and have great water. So I want to recommend to you, you think about all of these elements, maintenance, whether salt's an issue to you. If it is, consider potassium as an alternative, especially if you're on a low-sodium diet or you have an issue with blood pressure. Coming up this hour on Ken the Contractor in our In the News segment, Ken's going to ask, is your home ready for these digital devices that folks are utilizing? Is your home ready for this new technology? And coming up on Universal Living, a 100% barrier-free Hour that also functions. That's coming up on Ken the Contractor. Welcome back along with Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, and Ken is here every week at this time dealing with the issues that are important to you, today's homeowner. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Let's go to South Bend, Indiana right now, and David has a question for Ken. Hi, David. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. I just had a quick question. I, uh, one of my tiles in my bathtub fell down, and I realized that it was plastic, and underneath it is almost like a cardboard material. It's not directly onto the wall or the plaster of the bathroom wall. Is that common practice, and should, or should I just take the whole thing down? How old is it? Oh, I don't know. Our house is built in the 40s. This is probably not the original material. The fact that you indicate that there's plastic or what you perceive to be plastic and almost a cardboard material behind it, you may have a tile that's been installed over old plaster or perhaps even another layer of tile material that was originally installed. Anytime you start having product fall off the wall, one of the things I'd want to look at is why did it fall off? Was it poor workmanship, especially if it was a newer project? But something that's this old, I'd be a little concerned about any adhesives, mortar that may be behind it, any of those items that has just deteriorated, and whether or not there's actually water that's getting behind it. Because over a long period of time, that happens and it breaks down the substrate, the structure or the the backing that's behind the materials. So if you have this coming off voluntarily, meaning you're not in there with a hammer doing some other work, (laughs) then then I seriously would be looking at uh, perhaps repairing the entire area. Now, this is a complete shower stall, or is this also bathroom walls uh, around tub and so forth? Yes, it's a bathroom wall also. Okay, and these are individual tiles of what size? Um, I, I want to say orange tile. Okay. And are they in, in probably an area that's exposed to the greatest amount of moisture from, say, a shower head? Yes, they are. Well, again, I'd go back to my original comment. When you start to see that happen, that tells you that there's more going on behind the scenes, literally on the back side, than you probably can imagine. That can create some additional damage, some rot in the wood framing, perhaps subfloor material. I would be looking at taking it off and resurfacing that area. And today, fortunately, you have a lot of options in what you can put in around both your tub and your shower. Some very inexpensive, and they really run the gamut to the sky's the limit, depending on how much you want to spend. Okay. Well, thanks for the insight, Ken. Thank you. We appreciate your call, and thanks for listening to us. 
Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thank you, David. And don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. Ken, this email comes to us out of uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia, from Leicester, and it follows up on a conversation we had a couple weeks ago about a certain type of fencing that could be used to cut down on noise. And in the area that uh, Lester is in, he's got some major interstate noise that he's trying to find some way to block out. He does, and I think for most of us, when we think fencing, it's an area that we want to contain our dog, our kids, maybe create a little privacy in the backyard. But, Lester, first, we appreciate you listening to the show because you picked up on this in a segment a few weeks back, and you're in Fredericksburg, Virginia. You say, recently I heard you and Jim speak about a sound barrier fence. Now, to be clear, I didn't specifically refer to this as a sound barrier fence, but what I'm going to talk to you about does have sound qualities, and that's what makes this rather unique. You go on to tell us that you do live in an area with not only highway noise but industrial noise, and you also, to add to this, which is the reason I think your question is quite valid, is that you work nights and sleep days, and that's very difficult because most towns – especially more metropolitan areas like Fredericksburg, Virginia, have ordinances against loud noises beyond certain hours at night. But for those of you on night shifts, this can be difficult when you're dealing with all of it in the daytime. The product that I talked about is one that I discovered it. It was released last year at the International Builder Show. It's a product called Simtech Fencing. That's S-I-M-T-E-K Fencing Materials. Now, this is a very lightweight fence material. It's designed to look like a stone wall. It's lightweight to the point that a couple of people can pick it up and move it around. Each panel weighs only about 60 pounds. It's extremely durable. It resists everything from golf balls to baseball bats, and it has a substantial sound deadening coefficient or or factor or quality about that, and that's what we talked about. We're finding some municipalities, and talking to the Simtech folks, are actually considering this. They're looking at the test results right now to use it for sound deadening around highways and for other environments. Now, from an industrial standpoint, I've talked to some of my clients, manufacturers, about it, where they need to reduce noise around HVAC compressors or other loud pieces of equipment, that this fence is ideal to contain that noise. Now, Simtech fencing is available to the general public. It's available through the Home Depot distribution network nationwide. It's not stocked at Home Depot. It's a special order item. But if you go in the fencing department and you ask for Simtech fence panels, first you're going to be able to find literature there. Secondly, you'll be able to talk to them about what you need. And you're going to find it very easy to install. It's also affordable, meaning that it's not one of these that's the highest end of everything you can buy out there. It's probably, in my experience, about mid-range price-wise. I think this will solve your problem. You can also go to my website, KenTheContractor.com, and find out more about Simtech fencing. And we've got an email from Lewis out of Amherst, Virginia, who listens to our program on WAMV 1420 AM. And he's got a loose banister in a home that's over 100 years old. And his email is really short and simple. And sometimes I really like these. We can get right to it. Lewis, you say, can anything be done to repair or tighten an old loose banister? And you're referring to it as are the banister and the end post. You said you're talking about the one at the bottom of the stair. That's the beginning post or commonly known in the industry as a newel post. That's the starting post at the base to most stairs. And you don't have to be in a 100-year-old home to have that loose because I want to tell you, what do we do? And all of you that have stairs are thinking about what I'm fixing to say. I know that's the first thing we grab as we go up the stairs. The kids swing on it. We swing on it, coming and going up and down. That post is bound to become loose. And if you've got one that's 100 years old, my hat's off to you. It's performed well. Bottom line is, if it's that old, it's not going to have some of the modern adjustment devices that 
we have today because the way these are routed and assembled at the plant and if they're built in the field, and I'm saying this for the benefit of those of you with newer uh, handrails and stairs, that you will find typically there is a bolt that can be tightened underneath the rail, and in some cases there is uh, superfluous trim, meaning that it's just that, it's decorative trim. It has nothing to do with the structural integrity that can be removed and bolts tightened to better secure that newel post or the rail that's secured to the top of it. When you're dealing with the old handmade rails such as you are, Lewis, you will find that it, if you have a good structure behind it, if you're not dealing with any rot, that you can drill holes into that. And this is what I recommend. Drill. Don't take nails. A lot of people do that, and they destroy the old wood. But you want to drill a very small pilot hole in that, and then you can use trim screws and attach that back into the structure and then putty that hole or drill it large enough to put a wood plug in it and restain it or paint it the color that you have now. This will make it very sound. It will perform quite well. It will outlast the next generation of kids, and you may find, though, that if it's extremely loose, you might need to put two or three of those in. But don't use a standard screw, whatever you do. Remember what I said. It's a trim screw, very small head, very tight threads, very small screw in diameter, but drill the hole first or you will crack and split the wood. It's the best way I know to take care of these 100-year-old posts. These are not uncommon, especially for those of you living in the Virginia region and other areas that have been settled for many, many decades around this country. Good luck with your venture, Lewis, and we appreciate you listening and writing to us. I'll tell you what, you'll notice a world of difference once it gets fixed. It's one of those small, little nagging things that when you finally get it taken care of, it's worth a million bucks. Yeah, it really is. You wouldn't pay a million for it, but it seems like it's worth that. It's a nuisance, and it's one of those things we deal with in our home every single day, and we don't think about it, but Lewis is obviously aggravated enough that he says, what do I do? That's right. And that's one of the reasons why the show is here, to help you deal with these issues and help you get them done right, and hopefully get done the first time. We'll take a break, and then we'll continue with more. You can reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to his website, kenthecontractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. If you'd like to reach the show, if you do have a question for Ken, you can join us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Time now for this week's edition of In the News. Weekly Ken brings products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, purchases, remodeling, and new construction. And this one deals with those very tech-heavy electronic and digital devices that folks are incorporating into their home. It does. And this week, you, the listener, are part of In the News. The latest American Express spending and saving tracker report tells us that 49% of us intend to buy a TV set. Now, I'm going to tell you in a moment why this is important to you. 48% of us this year intend to buy a tablet or an ebook reader. 45% look at buying video game systems and games. And 45% of us intend to buy cameras or camcorders. All high-tech, all digital devices. And, folks, the question that In the News leads me to bring to each of us today is, are our homes really ready for some of the things we're buying today? First and foremost, deal with the wired technology. If you're buying a new TV set today and the interface that these have to connect with our computers, do you have that capability? Are you going to have to rewire or bring a specialist, a specialist, an electrician, somebody out to make this work before you can plug that TV in and use it for to the greatest extent? And the reason I say that with this in the news report, because 
if your home is not wired for this and you're spending money for technology that you don't intend to bring inside the house, then why spend those dollars? I want you to pay attention to that when you're in the marketplace buying any of these devices. We have a tendency to buy a lot more than we use. When it comes to wireless devices, that's much easier for us to deal with, whether we're simply adding a router or we are looking at adding a booster to our router. If you have multi-story home or a very long home and you want to have good strength throughout the house, also, again, I go back to the interface and the connects we have today between our TV sets and our computers. If your home's not ready for it and you're one of these statistics, you're looking to buy any of these new high-tech appliances, you need to add that to your budget. You may need to be doing some other upgrades. That's in the news this week. And our phone lines are open. If you've got a question for Ken, it's 800-614-2975. That's the number you dial to talk with Ken Patterson. Ken, the contractor, Roger dialed that number. He joins us right now. Hi, Roger. You're on the air with Ken, the contractor. About uh, situation, I have a uh, a leak, a water leak in my basement, and it only happens when we have like a substantial amount of rain. And the other thing is, it's kind of that area of my basement is surrounded by a um, a driveway and some shrubs, and I'm kind of reluctant to want to dig on the outside in order to put a sealer on. So I'm wondering if you have some idea of an interior method to uh, seal that place up. I have heard, by the way, that if you use the the spray-on pickup bed liners, that it does a wonderful job of sealing. I've never tried that, but I I do know an individual that has uh, in the past owned one of those franchises, and it tells me it's good for just about everything. Yes. But uh, I've never tried it on basement, so I, I, I have to pass on that other than sharing his remarks with you. But I need to know a little more about this. Is the leak coming through a wall or coming up out of the floor slab? It seems to be, I, I can't determine exactly, but it is either coming up through the wall or right where the wall and the floor mix. I do not think it's coming up through the floor slab itself. Okay, but if it's coming up at that cold joint where the concrete abuts the wall, right. it may well be just that water table in these heavy rains uh, reaching a point that it, it's it's high enough that that hydrostatic pressure is forcing it up between those cracks. Is this an unfinished? Okay. Is this an unfinished basement? No, it's finished, and All that's right. why I need to take care of it because once it starts flowing, it can ruin a lot of uh, carpeting yeah. and stuff. Sure. Do you have? Footing drains around the perimeter of the, the basement, or do you know? Um, there's not a footing drain around the perimeter. Somebody, when they built this house many years ago, decided to put a drain on the back wall of the basement that goes into a sump pump, and I think they bypassed, you know, put a foot, putting a footing drain around it. Okay. So you do have some water relief coming perhaps from a, a slope, uh, outside there, in, but only on one wall, not on both walls. Oh, yes, only on one okay. wall. Okay. If you can't, are you seeing any mold or mildew in your drywall or your finished products up high on the wall? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, uh, I am seeing, uh, seeing some paint peeling, but I think that's due to the moisture that's been getting in there from the water. All right. Is that fairly close to the floor line? Uh, it's all the way up to the uh, rafters. Okay. That's pretty substantial then. Some obvious things that are very inexpensive that I want you to check, and all I'm going to do is offer you some direction here. I'm not giving you a final answer because leaks are difficult to locate, but you've helped me understand your issue a little bit. One, I want you to check the outside of your house and be sure the grade 
around in your planter areas is such that all the water is draining away from the house, that when it rains, that the water is not going back against that basement wall. That's the first thing you can do that's very inexpensive, takes a little bit of your time, to be sure you're shedding water away from the foundation itself. Okay. And also check and be certain that if you have a gutter and downspout system, that the downspouts are directing the water away from the house. You have a turnout on the bottom and perhaps a splash block on the bottom or even an extended pipe to get it back to that positive grade area or out on your concrete if you can. You want to do all you can to reduce the volume of water coming in adjacent to the basement walls. Okay. So those are some quick, simple, very inexpensive items to do. Okay. The, the next thing that you really should pay some attention to, if you can, is to, to try and identify is the water coming through the wall because it will make a difference in how you resolve this. I think that I actually think, Ken, that it's coming through the wall. Okay. If it's coming through the wall, you may not know since you didn't build the house whether there are any pipes that penetrate the wall in that area. You've, if you've got drywall on it, the walls no doubt are, have furring strips or wood framing forward of the concrete or the block, and so pipes could be concealed. You may simply have a pipe penetrating a wall at that point, a sewer line, a water line, an electrical line, um, phone conduit, something in that effect, where the seal has broken around that and it's allowing water to get in that concentrated area. Now that you mention it, there is an electrical line coming through that, through that wall. Okay, so that could be a source of the water because you're only identifying one place to me where water's, where you're noticing water. Yes, that's correct. So I would check. Those are some obvious areas. Should be quick and simple. You may be able to excavate, dig down around that area by hand, even if it's in your planter area, without disturbing or uprooting all of your foundation plants. But I also want, if you're going to do that, I want to suggest you call Miss Utility and have them come mark the the sewer, the water, the power as it enters your home. That's a free service. It's a toll-free okay. number, and they'll give you a ticket number, so they'll mark it, and you'll know right where it is. But you, even though you're hand excavating, you want to be safe, and you don't want to damage the utilities, and you don't want to get hurt. Right, Dan. But those are some obvious things that come to my mind. If you're satisfied the water's coming up at that coal joint between the slab and the foundation wall itself, then that is indicative. I've seen this happen more times than a few. We're in heavy rainstorms, heavy, uh, you know, rainy seasons where the ground is saturated, that water table rises and it can't go anywhere. If there's no footing drain, it's going right. to find a way to come up in your basement. I and the only it. way you resolve that is going to be by an internal sump pump. Okay. <laughs> but start with the easy, quick, inexpensive items first and see if that doesn't solve the problem for you. I will do that, and I thank you very much for your information. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your call. All right. Bye now. Thanks, Roger. We do appreciate it. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. And Ken, as you've mentioned so many times before, trying to find the source of a leak, one of the most frustrating things. Not only is it frustrating, it is difficult, and it's difficult for a professional. So I want you to keep that in mind. We'll take a quick break and come right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor, and thanks for joining us this weekend. Our lines are always open, and you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or if you want to drop us an email, you can. And just send it to KenTheContractor.com. And Zach has done that. Get an email for us at Kilgore, Nebraska. And, Zach, we appreciate you listening to us on KINI 96.1 FM. And Zach has a fireplace question. And given your current weather situation and what you've been dealing with, I can understand why fireplaces continue to be popular, not only in your part of the world, but so many other places around. It says, I want to install an LP fireplace in my old fireplace, so I'm assuming you've got an old brick or stone fireplace. It said, I know there are many types available. 
is it best to install just a log set or a full box insert? And can I use the existing chimney or does it need a special flue liner? It's a great question. We get so many regarding fireplaces, but I can't remember when we've had one specifically like this, Zach. And that's the reason I pulled this one out to get on the air. First, I think you have to look at the integrity of the existing fireplace. If there's a reason for you to install an LP unit, meaning you want to get away from a wood-burning fireplace, in many cases it's because the mortar has deteriorated, not only in the firebox but perhaps in the chimney itself. And rather than spend the money to have this completely rebuilt or certainly repaired, many people opt for an insert. Now, if your mortar is sound, if the fireplace is great, and you are saying, I'm just tired of cutting firewood, and I want to put an LP unit in, then a log set may be fine for you. You have a two-part question. So first, keep that in mind. If the mortar, if the structural integrity is fine, you have no smoke leaks through it, you don't have mortar crumbling or brick or stone coming out, then you may insert or use just a log set only. You'll find it costs you a lot less money, and there are a lot of varieties available for you, a lot of different price points also. Now, as I said, if you go back, if you have a deteriorating fireplace and or chimney, and yet it's still structurally sound but not of the quality you want a fire in it anymore, then you want to consider an insert. You don't have to repair the firebox or the chimney. The insert is completely self-contained. You are going to have to take those measurements to a dealer. You'll find this is more of a custom fit if you're trying to go wall-to-wall or completely fill that existing firebox cavity, however, and you're going to pay a good deal more money for that. Now, the second part as to whether you have to do anything with the chimney, again, it goes back to the structural integrity of the flue, the brick, or the stone that surrounds that. If you're not sure, you may want to have that inspected by a chimney sweep because hopefully you're having it cleaned periodically anyway. If you're using a complete insert, chances are pretty good that manufacturer is going to suggest you use their flue pipe with that. If you're using only a log set, you no longer have an open flame moving up through the chimney, but you still have the opportunity for gases to escape, especially where it may be exposed to attic area and get back inside the house. So you want to talk to that manufacturer also or that dealer about some type of an insert if you find that chimney is unsound. Whatever you do, for you, Zach, and everybody, always be safe with fires within our home. So many Homes are burnt or destroyed throughout the year because of some of the problems I just talked to you about. Time now for our universal living segment, and we deal something right now that can seemingly you can't turn the TV on at all without seeing an advertisement for some type of safe shower or tub. And you're going to tell us about one that's 100% barrier-free, looks great, and works great. Well, actually, what I'm going to tell you about is one that is custom built, but there's nothing special about it. It's all in what's in your design and in your mind and maybe your flooring system, but your builder can easily adapt this. If you are remodeling a bathroom, you're literally gutting that. You're putting in new shower, new tub, new vanity. Everything in there is new or you're building new. And you're thinking about a barrier-free shower, one that qualifies for universal living, that makes it accessible for anybody. And I'm talking about one even without a threshold. Yes, I did say that. Absolutely flush to the surrounding floor. If you've got a concrete slab on grade in your new house, you simply need to create a recess in that slab, have that tile slope to the drain. You want to be sure you have good positive slope. And depending on the size of the shower, it may need to be two to three inches of fall that go down to that shower. And you, again, you, if you're on a wood floor, You can still do the same thing, but the contractor will have to deal with that in the joist to be sure that the joists are reinforced properly, the joists are notched, and the shower pan is set lower than the floor. And then you simply install the mud base, you install the tile, 
and you bring that up flush with the floor in the bathroom. Now, a lot of people don't think about this. I've done this many times. I've got this. This is a construction in my own home, and I've done it for so many clients that are not physically disabled. It's not about putting someone in in a wheelchair necessarily, but it is about making it universally acceptable to absolutely everybody. What you're going to find is that you eliminate some cleaning. You've eliminated some joints. You've eliminated that threshold that has mold and mildew and scum from time to time, and you've created a shower that will drain properly. Water's not going to be displaced on the outer area, and it works, as I said, two times now for absolutely everyone. So you can do it. Don't let anybody discourage you from it. And it's just using the standard materials. You are not buying anything special or extra. It's in the design. I've got time to sneak in a voicemail question from 800-614-2975. This is Sean, and he is in Dover, Delaware. I've got a question about water softeners or, uh, I guess, uh, getting minerals out of your water. Uh, I'm on the edge of town, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but Every faucet in my house has water deposits, mineral deposits on it, uh, to the point where uh, you know, all, the, all the metal it looks just covered. And I have a water uh, filter unit. I've got a two-part system. The first part uh, has a double filter that takes out sediment and uh, rust, and the second part takes out a little bit of chlorine and keeps the chlorinated smell out of the water. But I still have, I don't know if it's uh, lime deposits or calcium or what, but I still have a lot of deposits like that. And I'm wondering, is there another leg to this uh, water system that I currently have that I could put in to get rid of that? Or should I just chuck this system and get some sort of all-in-one system? And I'm looking for something that's low maintenance. I don't want to constantly fill bags of salt if I have to. And uh, there's limited space down near my, my water main, so I'd like something that's space-friendly, too. Sean, you have several options. First, you tell me you have some type of a filter system that's in place, which isn't necessarily a water softening system, and that's what you need. You have hard water from everything that you've described to me. So you need a water softener that's going to pull those minerals out of the water and if you're seeing it on the outside, it's also inside the plumbing lines, the water supply lines and the dishwasher and the washing machine in your house creating problems. First, I would go back to the manufacturer of the existing system and see if they have a third component that can marry these other two elements to the current system. I doubt you're going to find that's the case. My recommendation is that you ask the question first, though, but be prepared to investigate the different types of water softeners based on the hardness of the water in the Delaware area that you live in. You will find that the items you're already pulling out of your water you can do with a traditional water softener. In terms of taking sediment out and dealing with chlorine, water softeners will do that as well. But I would investigate those Personally, and I've said this several times on this show in just recent months, I use a Kinetico water softener, which I, I, has no maintenance to it. I, I'm a maintenance-free kind of guy, and it has no plugs, no batteries, no springs to wind, as I've said before. You simply put the salt in, whether it's uh, sodium or other uh, product, and you leave it alone. Let it do its own thing. Now, space, you mentioned, could be a little bit of an issue because of the size of these. So you need to take a dimension, the area you have available when you're talking to the dealers in your area. Maybe a photograph would be great so they can see a picture of the space and a footprint of it. Show them what you're working with. Tell them what you're trying to achieve. Take multiple bids. Always take at least three bids and ask a lot of questions, but there's an answer there for you. 
Sean, thank you. And that'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor, where folks come for professional answers. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. For Ken Patterson, I'm Jim Britt. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.